Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Campfield, and I'm recording this in Chicago on September 15th, 2023. In the previous program, I shared about the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age, the millennium, when Christ will be reigning on the earth. That's the time when the faithful overcoming believers who followed Christ faithfully in this age will be rewarded to reign with Christ for that thousand-year period, while the unfaithful believers, the defeated believers, will have a period of discipline during that time, during that 1,000-year period. Now, that's not a common view among Christians today. Most Christians assume that once you believe in Christ, there can't be any real problems between you and the Lord. Uh, Maybe you won't uh, receive a big reward when the Lord comes back, but you won't be disciplined in in too serious a way. And there's reasons for that, as I said. And uh, I do want, in the next program, again, I always have to qualify this, I hope to deal with some of those objections, what, what verses they would use to say, no, that's not the case. There's not going to be a time of rewarding and disciplining the believers. Uh, As I say, that hopefully will be the next program. But as I mentioned in the previous program, there is a view that some Christians have, and it seems to be gaining popularity today, that there's not even going to be a millennial reign of Christ on the earth. That after this age is over, the Lord's going to come back and judge uh, the earth, and then we go straight into eternity. And that view is called amillennialism. And of course, if there's not a millennium, then you don't have a time for rewarding and disciplining the believers at all. And so because this is a teaching which is gaining popularity and because it is so destructive of our faith, uh, I I just feel in this program, I I want to come back once again and to show just what a false teaching that really is. And I know uh, many people who hold this, many believers, they just think this is what the Bible teaches, that there's not going to be a millennium. That uh, the language of Revelation 20, they say, is it's, it's symbolic. Yeah, it shouldn't be taken in a literal way. There's no such thing anymore as the nation of Israel, at least not as far as God's purpose is concerned. And uh, the church has replaced Israel in that regard. And so all the language there is symbolic. And when the Lord comes back, everything's going to be wonderful and we go straight into eternity. But that view of the Bible is so destructive of our faith because it just, to take that view, you have to reject so much of what the Bible shows us about the Lord's purpose. And Christians who take that view don't realize the extent to which it frustrates and limits their growth as Christians because it prevents them from taking the Bible in the literal way that it is meant to be taken. Now, that doesn't mean you always take the Bible in a literal way. There are times when it's clearly speaking in figurative terms. But for the most part, it is pretty clear when that's the case. But when it is meant to be taken literally, it should be taken literally. And there certainly is no reason not to take Revelation chapter 20 in a literal way. Now, I would much prefer to spend these programs, and for the most part I do, getting into the positive revelation that we see in the Bible of God and Christ and of God's purpose and how God brings us into relationship with himself for the sake of carrying out his purpose. That's what we really want to do in these programs. But there is a time, as Jude tells us, that we need to contend for the faith. And because we see this false teaching spreading today and influencing believers in Christ, I do feel there is a real need to expose it 
and to deal with it and to show it to be the false teaching that it really is. Now, I have done already uh, a four-part series on the teaching about millennialism, and I'll link to that in the program notes below. In this program, I want to just try to deal with it in a more concise way to sum up some of the points uh, that expose this teaching for what it is. But even though uh, this is kind of a, it's a negative topic, I do hope that as we're dealing with this teaching, we will, as the believers, will have a much fuller appreciation of how much we can trust the Bible and how we can receive the Bible just as it's written as the basis for our faith. Because it's only when we have that kind of faith in the Bible, faith in the, uh, that it really is the Word of God, that it means what it says, that's only way we can go on with the Lord in a healthy way. So now let's just briefly consider the teaching of amillennialism. And I'm calling this program Three Strikes Against the Amills because what I want to do is to just to bring out in a concise way three basic points that really fully prove that amillennialism is a completely false teaching. That is, it's not according to the Bible. Now, the first of these points is more general, and then in the second and third points, I'll be dealing with some specific portions of Scripture. Now, the first point, strike one against amillennialism, is that it simply isn't in the Bible. There is no portion of the Bible that sets forth the amillennial view. It is not there. And you would think that if you uh, were going to base your whole theology on this viewpoint, you would want to see a particular portion of the scripture that sets forth the amillennial view, and they simply don't have one. What you do see set forth in the Bible is a very clear presentation of the premillennial view of how this age is going to end and how the Lord is going to bring in the new heaven and the new earth, and you have that in Revelation chapter 20. The angel comes down from heaven he binds Satan, casts him into the abyss for a thousand years. Then you have the reigning of the overcoming believers in the first resurrection of the 1,000 years. At the end of that time, Satan comes up out of the abyss. You have the final rebellion against God. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys the rebellious ones. Then you have the final great white throne judgment. And then you have the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. That's the premillennial view, and it is set forth in a very clear and direct way in the scripture. In contrast to the amillennial view, there's simply no place you can go to in the scripture and say, oh, here it's talking about amillennialism. Now, whenever you talk to the amillennials, they like to say, oh, but there's only one portion of the scripture that actually talks about the millennium, and that's in Revelation chapter 20. Well, my response to that is very simple. That's one more than the Amills have. And I've said this before. If you're keeping score at home, kids, uh, that means pre-mills one, Amills nothing, game over. And, of course, when I say that, I mean there is only one explicit reference to the millennium in the Scripture. In the Old Testament in particular, you have so many promises to the nation of Israel that will require the future reign of the Messiah on the earth in order to be fulfilled. And that's why in the New Testament, in the Gospels, you constantly see that the Jews at that time were looking for the return of the Messiah to fulfill those promises. And that includes the disciples. They certainly expected 
when the Lord was with them on the earth, that he was going to establish his kingdom to fulfill the promises that God had made to Israel in the Old Testament. But because you do have that explicit reference to the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, then at least as one who has the premillennial view of the scripture, I have a portion of scripture I can go to that sets forth the premillennial understanding of the end times. The amillennials simply don't have that. And that alone, it shows you, if you take the Bible seriously, you should realize that means what I believe isn't true if you're an amill, because there is nothing in the Bible that sets forth that view. The way you become amillennial is by rejecting Revelation chapter 20 and saying it's something spiritual. It doesn't really mean what it says. And then they have verses uh, that they use to support their view, which speak of the kingdom of God in spiritual terms, such as Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. That's where the Lord says that the kingdom of God doesn't come by observation. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Well, at that time when the Lord was on the earth, for sure the kingdom of God was in their midst. The kingdom of God was already there in a hidden way in the person of Christ because he was on the earth. For sure, the kingdom of God at that point was on the earth in a hidden, mysterious way, but it wasn't yet openly manifested. That's why he says the kingdom of God does not come by observation at that time. But that does not say that there's not also going to be a time when the kingdom of God is going to become to be in an open, manifested way on the earth, namely during the millennium. Uh, another verse they use is Roman four, Romans chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, again, amen to that. Yeah, that's, that's fine. But that doesn't say there's not going to be a kingdom of God in the future also. Now, I will say, I think some dispensational teachers probably go too far and they say there is no sense in which we have the kingdom of God today. That's not what I believe. The the biblical view is that the kingdom of God, as we see in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, is among us and absolutely should be among us today in a hidden, mysterious way. That is called the kingdom of the heavens. It's not with us in an open, manifested way today. That's going to happen in the future. But it is with us in a hidden and mysterious way even at the end of Acts chapter 8, uh, sorry, at the end of Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul was still speaking about the kingdom of God. So you can't say there is no sense in which the kingdom of God is with us today. And in that, if, if dispensational teachers try to deny that, they go too far. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is with us today. But that does not mean, like the Amillennials would claim, that there is therefore not a sense in which the kingdom is going to be on the earth at some point in the future. And again, you simply do not see anywhere in the Bible where such a claim is set forth. And as I said when I was doing that series on amillennialism, the early believers were premillennial in their eschatology. And I, I didn't quite realize it until I was looking into this, but that's what most uh, church history scholars would say they were Premillennial. They were not what we would say. They didn't have a full-blown dispensational system for understanding the end times. But they were premillennial. They expected the Lord to come back and establish His reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, at that time, it was called kiliasm, because that relates to the Greek word for one thousand. And just I made a mistake. uh, I misspoke last in the previous program. I said 
the term millennialism relates to the Greek word for 1,000. That's not right. Millennialism, millennial, relates to the Latin word for 1,000. Kiliasm relates to the Greek word for 1,000. And that's what, that's what the early believers were. It was not until later, maybe uh, towards the end of the 2nd century, I'm not quite sure, 3rd century, when Greek philosophy began to permeate and invade and corrupt the church, that's when the premillennial view began to become less popular because according to Greek philosophy, Gnostic philosophy, the material realm is inherently evil and therefore they said, how could God possibly want to establish his kingdom in this material world? And then secondly, what was happening at that time was that the church was being corrupted and it was losing sight of the Lord's return. And so they wanted a Bible teaching that gave up on the immediate hope of the Lord's coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. And that was a big reason why amillennialism became more popular because it makes the Lord's return so much more distant and so much more remote. When we say he's not coming to this present earth, this present earth is just going to be over. And it was Augustine of Hippo that uh, in about around 400 AD, he was the first one who really set forth in a full-blown way the amillennial teaching, and it's been dominant in the church ever since. Now, one way they dealt with the premillennial view of the Lord's return in the Eastern Church, they simply rejected the book of Revelation outright. They said oh, it's not a part of the scripture in the Eastern Church. The Western Church didn't do that. But the Eastern Church did. They said, no, we don't believe this is part of the scripture, at least for a time. Now, I think uh, today, I think they do accept it as part of their scripture. But at that time, because they wanted to get rid of the premillennial view, they simply got rid of the book of Revelation altogether. And my feeling is, well, at least they were honest about what they were doing. At least they admitted they don't believe the book of Revelation. In the Western Church, they accepted the Revelation eventually as part of the canon, and they claimed to believe what it says in Revelation 20, but they don't actually believe what it says. They're not being honest. They say well, when, when those verses talk about the Lord coming and establishing his kingdom on the earth and Satan being bound, well, we take that in a spiritual sense. They're just rejecting it. Until today, they just reject it. They claim they believe it in a spiritual sense, but in reality, they don't really believe it. Uh, like I say, at least in the Eastern Church at that time, they were honest, and they just got rid of the book of Revelation altogether. So that's when the amillennial view came into uh, the church, as I said, at that when the church was being corrupted, because it makes it easier to settle down and to be comfortable in the world because you make the Lord's return so much more remote. You know, a, a few programs ago, I was talking about the exodus of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt and uh, how Satan, or rather Pharaoh, was bargaining with Moses to try to keep them in the land of Egypt. And at one point, I think it's in Exodus chapter 8, uh, Pharaoh says to Moses, okay, you, you can go into the wilderness, but, but don't go too far. And of course, all of this is a picture of how Satan tries to keep us as believers under his influence. And I made the point then, and it's sorry, it's a fair point, that that's a picture really of a lot of amillennial believers and why this teaching is attractive because it makes it easy for you to, to, to somewhat settle down in the world. You can say, yes, I'm following Christ to a certain extent, but I'm not going too far. I'm not like one of those crazy believers who really believes everything the Bible says. That's, I'm not that kind of believer. I'm not that kind of Christian. And I don't mean it only refers to the amillennial believers, but it certainly does refer, uh, I, I should say, it does picture, I think, what a, the way a lot of amillennial believers 
take the word of God today because they only take part of it, so they're not going too far. They're not like crazy Christians. Well, in a sense, as far as the world's concerned, we should be crazy Christians. The world should think we're a little bit crazy uh, because we really believe the revelation that's in the Bible that to them is a bunch of nonsense, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 2? No, I... No, I just looked it up. Chapter 1, for sure I should have known where that was. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the preaching to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews require signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Actually, that's uh, through verse 25. So don't be surprised if we really believe the Bible is the word of God. Yes, the world is going to think these people are a little bit weird, maybe a little bit foolish, as it says they're even crazy sometimes. But that shouldn't deter us. We need to take the Bible as it's written. So as I say, that's the first really big strike against the amillennial teaching. It simply is not in the Bible. And if anyone feels I'm wrong about that, send me a note. I'd like to hear, you know, where, okay, where do you see this teaching set forth in the Bible? Because it certainly isn't there as far as anybody else can see. But if you feel otherwise, send me a note. I'd like to hear from you. So we will get into the other two points on the other side of the break. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth with your walk with the Lord and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Hello and welcome back. And I have to be honest to welcome me back from my lunch break here. So hopefully we're ready to go for the rest of the program. But before going on to the remaining two strikes against amillennialism, I still want to say a little bit more about the first point. And to be honest, that'll be, I think, a good way to segue into these remaining points. As I said before, if you take the amill view, you just you're just not approaching the scripture in the right way. And as I've been, even as I've been recording this, I was just reminded about uh, the view of Augustine of Hippo, who was, according to G.H. Pember, he was a very remarkable servant of the Lord. But it was because of his influence that amillennialism has been adopted so widely in the church ever since his time. He was the first one who really set forth that teaching in a fairly systematic way. He's talking about the abyss in Revelation chapter 20 and what that is. And he says, well, the abyss there, that's that's the human heart, which is just filled with malignity against God. And when I saw that statement, I just, you just have to weep. You just have to hang your head. How can anyone come to the Bible in this way 
and claim that they're really under the authority of Scripture. You can just make the Bible say anything you want it to say, if that's how you interpret it. Now, as I said when I was doing the programs before, anomalennialism, well, I, I think the abyss is the dumpster in the alley behind my building here in Chicago. And I, I have no doubt sometimes there's some pretty crazy stuff in there and pretty dark, right? But, okay, it may be pretty bad, but that does not make it what Revelation chapter 20 is talking about. You have to put yourself under the authority of Scripture and allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture itself. That's when the Scripture will begin to open up to you. You can't simply have these wild interpretations and say, well, I think it means this, I think it means that. You always have to have a strong basis for interpreting things as you do. Now, we'll come back to this particular point when we get to the third strike. But again, just the, the principle here is you just have to see that if you take the amillennial view, your, your approach to the Scripture becomes so wild and so unrestrained and so without any limiting principle Again, it just we, we shouldn't come to the Bible like that. Instead, we really need to put ourselves under the authority of Scripture if we're going to interpret Scripture in a proper way. Now, secondly, there's another verse uh, I need to deal with because it's a really key verse that the amillennials use to support their view. And that is Galatians 6, verse 16. And I'll read uh, verse 15 as well to give it the context. Of course, this is at the end of the book of Galatians where Paul has been very much dealing with the Galatians' a desire to keep the law. And he writes, uh, Galatians 6.15, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Verse 16, And as many as walk by this rule, peace be upon them and mercy even upon the Israel of God. So based upon this verse, the millennials say that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. And therefore, all the Old Testament promises, instead of being fulfilled to Israel, are going to be filled, fulfilled to the church. And that means there's not going to be an earthly kingdom of Israel in the future. That's over. Israel may still exist as a nation, but it doesn't have anything to do anymore with God's plan, based on this verse. Again, it's just wild, crazy interpretations of the scripture. It just, you just have to weep. and It makes you so angry people interpret the Bible in this way. Okay. What is this verse saying? It is saying, yes, in a spiritual sense, those who walk in the principle of a new creation are fulfilling today what God wanted Israel to fulfill in the Old Testament, namely that he would have an expression on the earth. That's what Paul's talking about. So in a spiritual sense, yes, the church does fulfill the purpose of Israel in the present age. But that does not mean Israel has ceased to exist to it as a nation or it doesn't indicate either that in the future God is not going to bring Israel back into his purpose. This, is, this kind of interpretation of the scripture is just totally baseless. And, and, just, and just, you're just doing violence to the scripture when you interpret it in this way. Now, I would point out that almost the entire Old Testament deals with the nation of Israel, and so much of the Old Testament consists of the promises to the nation of Israel and how God is going to bless them when he does restore them, which is what he is going to do in the future, when he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth in the millennium. Okay, that's just about the entirety of the Old Testament. If you think you're going to set all of that aside, 
and say that Israel has ceased to exist to a nation, I would think you would want a pretty clear and direct statement to that effect in the New Testament. Very strong teaching. You absolutely don't have that. You certainly don't have that in Romans 11, when Paul is talking about grafting the nation of Israel back in again. Where is the clear teaching in the New Testament that says Israel has ceased to exist as a nation that has anything to do with God's plan? And I, I, the blindness of people who teach this thing is just remarkable. One of the clearest proofs we have that the Bible is the word of God and that prophecy is being fulfilled is the fact that Israel today is back in the good land. That's preparing the way for the Lord's return. But the, I, don't, I don't know what the amillennialists even say about that. You know, again, you know, the Lord says uh, to the Pharisees, look, if you don't believe me, at least believe because of the works. I would say to the amillennialists, if you don't believe what the scripture says, then at least believe what the Lord has done in history to restore the nation of Israel. That should show you your teaching and your view of the nation of Israel is completely false. It's evil, frankly, the, the, the sin you're teaching. It's just evil. And you, you, you rob God's children of the word of God. Where is the clear teaching in the New Testament that Israel is over as a nation? You don't have anything in that regard. Shame on you for teaching that. Shame on you for claiming you're serving the word of the Lord by uh, presenting that kind of demonic teaching uh, that Israel is over and that there's not going to be a millennium. It's just totally baseless. And you should be ashamed of yourselves for teaching this kind of thing and claiming to be those who serve the, the, the Lord. To some extent, the word applies to you uh, that Paul said Satan himself transfigures himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if also his ministers transfigure themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. What an evil, evil teaching this is. You just can't denounce it too strongly because, again, it deprives God's children of his word. So evil, so unspeakably evil. Again, I would say, where is this clear, definite, direct statement in the New Testament that Israel is gone forever. It's no longer a part of God's purpose. To use this verse in that way is just totally, totally irresponsible. And that's the best you can say about it. In reality, it's much worse. It's Satan using it to, to tell God's children, yea, has God said. It's really evil. And, and it does make me angry, obviously, to, to consider this and just how uh, this teaching does violence to the word of God. Not a small thing. Not a small thing to teach falsely and to deceive God's children in this way. Now, people say we shouldn't separate over teachings. I don't say, no, these are brothers. I don't deny that. But their teaching is so destructive. And that's a really, really, really big deal as far as the Lord is concerned. We'll all render an account. And James says those of us who teach will be uh, judged more strictly. So we all need the Lord's mercy. We all uh, fall short, no doubt, in some ways. And we need the Lord's blood. But we have to denounce this evil teaching for what it is. And as I say, just no basis in the New Testament for saying that Israel has ceased to exist as a nation in God's purpose. Okay, so that brings us to the next point, which bears directly on this matter. And that is the Lord's word to the apostles at the time he ascended into heaven. And this is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. So he's getting ready to ascend here, and the apostles at this time are concerned about the situation of the nation of Israel. And so they ask him about, is he going to restore the kingdom? So I'll, I'll just read all the verses here. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Therefore, when they had come together, they questioned him, saying, Lord, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So here you have a direct statement from the Lord that the kingdom will be restored to Israel at some point in the future. He strongly affirms that's exactly what's going to happen in answering their question. They ask him, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? It's like they were prompting him, like they were afraid he'd forgotten, and they wanted to to remind him before he ascended. He does not say to them, no, you don't understand. Israel is no longer a nation as far as God's concerned. It's not going to get the kingdom back. That's all over. The church replaces Israel. It's going to replace Israel in 10 days. Forget about it. It's done. That's not what he says. What he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, it is going to happen. The kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. You just don't know when it's going to happen, and I'm not going to tell you when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. The kingdom will be restored to Israel at some point in the future. That is game over for amillennialism. It's over at that point. Either you believe amillennialism or you believe what the Lord says here. There is going to be a time when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. It's just a direct statement from the Lord. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. That is strike two, a big strike two. The Lord says it's going to be restored. Okay, maybe you feel it's not going to be restored, but I'm going to go with the Lord on that one. I'm going to take the Lord's word. I'm not going to take the rotten teaching of amillennialism to try to deprive me of what the Lord says here. It's just, again, completely false. And as I get into this, it just, it does make me angry because it's it's so evil in the way it cheats God's children out of the word of God. So that's a very simple one. It's just a very direct statement from the Lord, but it is a huge strike against amillennialism. And that is strike two, when the Lord says, the kingdom is going to be restored to the nation of Israel. So that brings us to the third point, the third strike against amillennialism. And of course, as you know, in baseball, three strikes and you're out. Actually, any one of these strikes is enough to end, end the argument. So, But uh, three strikes for sure, you're out. So for this, I want to start by looking at Revelation 20, some of the verses there, because this is, as we've said, the key portion in the New Testament on the millennium. And I'll read the first three verses, Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not lead the nations astray any more until the thousand years should be completed. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. And that's where you see the angel binding Satan, as it says, with a great chain for a thousand years and casting him into the abyss. Now, a key tenet of amillennialism is that the abyss here is something figurative. I've already mentioned in this segment about how Augustine said that the abyss here, it signifies a human heart. It's, it's not an actual place. It's, it just signifies a human heart and how uh, malign the heart, human heart can be against God. Well, there's no question We all know how dark and evil our hearts is. But that's not what this is talking about here. Is this something figurative? That's the question. 
or when it says that Satan is going to be bound by an angel and cast into the abyss, is that talking about an actual future event that is going to happen in the future? And as I stress strongly already in this program, we have to interpret the scripture with scripture, and that gives us the answer. And this is the third and final strike against the amillennial teaching. So to get the answer to this question, we have to look at an incident in the Gospels. And that is the story of how the Lord crossed the sea to cast out the legion of demons. And you have to compare this in a couple of the different Gospels. So first, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has just he's crossed the sea with his disciples and he, he gets on the land. In Matthew 8.28, it says, When they had come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, Two possessed by demons met him as they came out of the tomb, so exceedingly fierce that no one could pass that way. Now listen here to what the demons say to Jesus. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Okay, now we're not going to deal with the rest of this story. I just want to focus on this point. Here the demons are saying, There's a time coming, and they know it's coming, when they are going to be tormented. Well, does the New Testament tell us what that torment is going to be? And the answer is yes. And for that, you have to look at the sister account in Luke chapter 8. We just read in Matthew chapter 8. This is in Luke chapter 8. Now, hear what the demons say in Luke chapter 8, verse 28. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beseech you, do not torment me. So here again, the demons, they know they're going to be tormented. They're saying, don't torment us yet. It's not the time yet to torment us. Very interesting episode. Well, how are they going to be tormented? Verse 31 gives us the answer. And they pleaded with him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Do you see what it's saying here, saints? The demons know for sure there is a time coming in the future when they will be cast into the abyss. Well, where does the New Testament talk about that happening? The only time the New Testament talks about that is in Revelation chapter 20 when Satan is cast into the abyss and for sure all his legions were going to go with him into the abyss for that 1,000 years. And that's why they can't deceive the nations any longer because they're all in the abyss. That's the fulfillment of what is being spoken here. So the abyss there, it is not figurative. It is clearly a real event that's going to happen, that the demons at a certain time in the future with Satan are going to be cast into the abyss for that 1,000-year period. The Bible leaves no question about that. And the demons know they are going into the abyss. That's their next destination. And that prospect terrifies them because they know it is a real thing. And they they know the kind of torment that's going to be. They know for sure. uh, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 3. That is not uh, figurative language. They know. The demons know for sure it's something real. And I've said this before. So um, the demons may teach amillennialism. But it's sure not something they believe themselves. They know for sure it's a false teaching. And the reality of the situation and of their situation terrifies them because they know where they're going, namely into the abyss, as these verses fully prove. 
So that's the third strike against amillennialism. I don't think they have any way to answer that. How you can possibly interpret Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3 in a figurative way when you compare that uh, that portion with these verses in Matthew and in Luke. I'm not sure who else has pointed that out, um, but it fully proves, again, that uh, amillennialism is a completely false teaching, and we should never give it any credence or believe it has any kind of legitimacy. And as that baseball anthem goes, one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. And so it's really game over for amillennialism, and, and thank the Lord for that, not a moment too soon, frankly. And so I hope this is helpful to some believers who may get a hold of this, who've been deceived by that false teaching. And if you have any comments or questions, you know, again, let me know. I'd, I'd like to hear from you. And maybe you have some, some way of arguing about these things. I'm not really big on arguing, but uh, you have to stand for the truth. And uh, if, if you feel I've misrepresented anything that the amillennials teach, let me know. Um, I think I've given a pretty fair presentation of what they claim to say claim to believe. But positively speaking, as I say, I just hope this will really help us to have, a, as believers in Christ, to have a much more solid view of the Bible and how we should come to the Bible and how we can trust the Bible and believe what it says, that it really is showing us the things to come. When it talks about biblical prophecy, we shouldn't try to spiritualize it. These are real things that are actually going to happen. That is so important for us as believers in Christ, especially in these days when the tide of the world is just at a flood stage. We really need to be in the word and we need to have the assurance that the Lord is coming soon to put an end to this evil age. That's what, going to, what can really help us to stand for the Lord and for his testimony in these dark times. May the Lord make it so. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.